You're listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. Radio Activism is a program of conversations with activists and authors, and it came about as a response to the 2016 presidential election, which left a lot of people, including me, worried about the future of our democracy. And I mean people across the political spectrum, people of all demographics, So we thought we'd make a program by and for people who are engaged or want to be engaged in bringing about a way of living that's fairer and cleaner and more transparent and open and more democratic and more sustaining of plants and animals, including people. So in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Terry Tempest Williams, who's one of my favorite authors ever. And her husband, Brooke Williams, who's a longtime advocate for public lands. But first, we're going to hear a poem by Terry that I first heard her read here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she gave a talk for the Lannan Foundation. And this poem speaks to me on many levels, including how to think about activism. Erosion. It is morning. I am morning. And the river is before me. I am a writer without words who is struggling to find them. I am holding the balm of beauty, this river, this desert, so vulnerable, all of us. I am trying to shape my despair into some form of action, but for now I am standing on the cold edge of grief. We are staring at a belligerent rejection of change by our fellow Americans, who believe they have voted for change. The seismic shock of a new political landscape is settling. For now, I do not feel like unity is what is called for. Resistance is our courage. Love will become us. The land holds us still. Let us pause and listen and gather our strength with grace and move forward like water in all its manifestations. Flat water, white water, rapids and eddies, and let us flood this country with an integrity of purpose and patience and persistence, capable of cracking stone. I am a writer without words who continues to believe in the vitality of the struggle. Let us hold each other close and be kind. Let us gather together and break bread. Let us trust that what is required of us next will become clear in time. What has been hidden is now exposed. This river, this morning, this moment, may we be brave enough to feel it deeply and then act. That was Terry Tempest Williams with a poem that she wrote on the morning of Wednesday, November 9th, sitting by the edge of the Colorado River. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Terry Tempest Williams, who is one of my favorite authors ever, and her husband, Brooke Williams, who is a longtime advocate for public lands and an author himself. When I heard that Terry Tempest Williams had a new book, The Hour of Land, I got very excited. And then when I saw the subtitle, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks, I started imagining friendly park rangers in beige uniforms and those wonderful Ansel Adams' magnificent vistas. But of course, the picture that she paints is much more complex than that. She takes you on this journey that's deep and surprising and harrowing and magical all at the same time. Well, maybe not all at the same time, but in the same book. And as I was reading, I suddenly thought about 
this thing called reflexology, which if you've never heard of it, it's a kind of healing practice whose premise is that your feet are a map of your whole body and that by touching parts of the feet, you can tell what's going on everywhere else, like the lungs and the stomach and the heart and so on. And for me, this book was like that. The national parks became the story of my entire country and all of its greatness and awfulness and humor and pain and beauty and and so much more. Brooke Williams also has a new book. It's called Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. And it's a very personal book about wilderness and ancestors and what it's like to be out on the land profoundly alone with your dog and the spirits of the past, including spirits of people like his great-great-great-grandfather, William Williams, and Charles Darwin. You'll have to read it to find out more. But anyway, in the conversation that you're about to hear, we can't go into every chapter of each book. You can find these books, you can order them at your local bookstore, and actually you can listen to The Hour of Land if you use audiobooks, which I highly recommend. Terry herself reads it in her beautiful mellifluous voice, which you just heard a moment ago. I have to say, her chapter on Gulf Islands National Seashore has some of the most incredible reporting I've ever read on the effect of the Deepwater Horizon spill. These are stories that are not heard enough and really should be heard by by everybody, by all Americans. And her chapter on Alcatraz is about art and incarceration, Native American resistance. I mentioned these two in particular because we don't get to talk about them, and I think they're really important. Okay, so... The focus of this program, radioactivism, is, as we've said, obviously activism, but it's also about how each of us comes to our own clarity about what we should do, how we want to be in the world, how we want to fight and sometimes not fight, how we want to be of service, how we want to take care of ourselves and stay healthy. And I think both books really explore that. So here we go. Welcome, Terry Tempest-Williams and Brooke Williams to Radioactivism. Thank Thank you. you. It's so great to see you again. It's great to have you back. I had no idea until I read this book, The Hour of Land, that our national parks could really tell the story of our country in such a deep and wide-ranging way. You write at the beginning of the book, this is a book about relationships, and as readers were traveling with you into the relationships among wilderness and family, war, energy, ancestors, native people. How did this book come to be? Did you have a sense of its scope when you began? I absolutely did not, nor would I have ever taken this on. You know, I thought, oh, this will be the easiest book ever. Because as a Utahn, you know, my entire life, I thought our national parks were our backyard, especially as a child growing up, where Zion, Bryce, Capitol Reef, Arches, Canyonlands National Parks were where we played as children. And now Brooke and I live adjacent to Arches National Park and a stone's throw away from Canyonlands. So, you know, to me, our national parks are a gateway drug into our public lands. And as you know, as a Westerner, especially in the American Southwest, our public lands are under siege. So I thought that for the centennial year of the National Park Service, this would be a wonderful way to look at our public lands as our public commons. What I didn't know is that in thinking about our national parks, it would become really an exploration of America. And I have to tell you, Mary Charlotte, 
I fell madly in love with our country again. And, you know, whether it is looking at the Bakken oil fields right next door to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, where President Roosevelt said it was because of those North Dakota badlands that he developed the character to become United States president to looking at the Gulf Island National Seashore, the site of the BP oil spill in 2010, to Alcatraz, um, thinking about incarceration and its relationship to creativity through Ai Weiwei, the dissident Chinese artist who had an, uh, an exhibit there, to Canyonlands, where you know now we're thinking and looking at our newest national monument, um, certainly in the American Southwest, Bears National Monument that now runs the risk of being rescinded by the Trump administration, or at the very least gutted. So it was a dynamic project and one that I really wasn't prepared for. You said at a certain part early in the book that there were some landscapes that made you feel patriotic. Yes, and that would be North Dakota, strangely yeah. enough. Um, the first time that I went to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, I was stunned by the viewscape um, for as far as you could see, you know, badlands. And not not like the South Dakota badlands, bare and raw and exposed, but a gentility of form um, with the vegetation, and yet this highly eroded, um, diverse landscape with prairie dogs and pronghorn and bison and wild horses. It just allowed me to reimagine what America must have looked like as settlers moved west, even Teddy Roosevelt at the hour of his own grief where he lost his wife and mother on the same day. And that's where he left the East Coast um, to really allow himself to grieve at the Elkhorn Ranch. So deeply patriotic. I felt the same way at Big Bend, I have to say, and if I ever disappear, it will be there. Just miles and miles and miles of wildness and right there on the border. And for those people, you know, anyone who's been to Big Bend National Park, the thought of a wall is, to quote Charles Bowden, um, not only absurd, but I think he said, quote, a fucking piece of performance art. <laughs> you know, it, it can't happen. I mean, those walls rise upward like praying hands. They're immense in its rugged, dry country. And when I was there, you know, you watched children from Mexico skipping stones to children in yeah. America. And, you know, at that time it was ankle deep water. And uh, again, a different kind of patriotism, hoping to keep the open space of democracy open. The kinds of conflicts that we're having over public lands now go way back. And I was actually surprised. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of history in this book. It's really quite enlightening. I was surprised to read the part about how in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, there's this, you tell the story of how John D. Rockefeller tried to donate land for that park. Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was president, hesitated. The whole process was very controversial. What did that look like then? What does it look like now? I think we see that national parks are political, highly political. Um, national monuments, 
Many of them have been extremely controversial, as the one you mentioned, the Grand Teton National Monument, which was um, eventually absorbed into Grand Teton National Park. But yes, the the stampede that took place, you know, in the late 40s, where uh, someone like the former governor and senator, Cliff Hansen, led the stampede right through Grand Teton National Park in protest, saying, you know, here our American boys are fighting and losing their lives in Europe during World War II, and yet you're ripping the ground right beneath their feet. When Senator slash Governor Hansen was in his 80s, very close to death, he said, I was on the wrong side of history, and Grand Teton National Park was the best thing that ever happened to our state. And you know, I don't think there's any national monument or national park that has been looked upon regrettably through the eyes of history. And it makes me realize, and I think we all should take note, that when you hear the Utah delegation, their outcry over Bears Ears National Monument, 1.3 million acres, first monument led by an intertribal commission, the Navajos, the Ute Nations, the Hopi, the Zuni, that it it doesn't represent Utah values, I think they're dead wrong. And they're in the pockets of the oil and gas industry in the same way that they now want to rescind the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument that was made 20 years ago. We're seeing this same story that you're talking about in Grand Teton National Park played out in Maine. Instead of John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his son Lawrence Rockefeller, you have the founder of Burt's Bees, Roxanne Quimby and her son, Lucas St. Clair, donating 80,000 plus acres, which became the new Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And the Governor LePage of Maine wants to rescind that. But Susan Collins, much wiser than Utah's delegation, is saying no. It's actually already showing an economic boon in towns like Millinocket that were shut down because of the paper industry. So we do have a history that shows us the protection of public lands benefits all of us as our public commons, a breathing space in a society increasingly holding its breath. That is such a big part of the book and really of of both of your books, the deep importance of wilderness and public lands and the things that people talk about. I mean, they talk recreation and the economy and very important things like ecosystems and wildlife connectivity and things like that. But both of you also write about sanity, restoration of oneself, of one's soul. I think it was you, Brooke, who said that you shifted from the concept of being here to save wilderness to being saved by wilderness. And I wondered if you could each talk about that. Yeah, for years, I worked on f trying to find creative new ways to make the argument for wilderness. And a lot of people um, out there, old, wild old line wilderness advocates, have always maintained that we need to save the wilderness even if we never visit it. That we just need to know those places exist, the intrinsic values. And I agree that the intrinsic values are significant and very, very important. But I think the argument has been made a long time and it's no longer as effective as it sh needs to be to expand the idea. And this idea of that we need to save the wilderness because it saves us, for me, it's all about evolution. We evolved in wild places 
and we still are living in these wild bodies. Right? Our bodies haven't changed much for 150,000 years, and yet we are forcing them to live in a world that's vastly different than the one they were designed for. And I, I really believe that there's a connection when you are in a wild place, the wild part of yourself mixes with the wild landscape, and ideas and inspiration and possibly even answers to some of these massive questions that we've created are possible. The national parks, national monuments, national lands, and there's so many different designations, I we can't even like go into what those distinctions are, but they are protected, but they're not islands. They're inextricably connected to the land around them. And like in Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, which you talked about, I mean, you're painting a picture of utterly out of control oil and gas development right around the park. And socially, it's it's almost like the 19th century California gold rush. And you go there with your father, whose life work was laying pipelines for oil and gas. What was that like? I mean, where did you and your father find points of common ground? Where did you diverge? That's such a good question. Uh, my father had never been to North Dakota. Our family business, four generations, has laid pipe where natural gas would run through to heat our homes, subdivisions. And my family has worked in eight western states, never North Dakota. So my father was really interested in seeing what was happening at the Balkan. And we were there at its boom where it was, I think, a million barrels a day. Now we're in the bus cycle of, of the Bakken. But, you know, so we would spend the days out with a dear friend of mine, Valerie Naylor, who at the time was the superintendent of Theodore Roosevelt National Park and looking at these beautiful eroded landscapes, wind, the little Missouri, you know, just gorgeous, gorgeous landscapes. And then dad said, let's go see the Bakken. And once we left the boundaries of the park, you saw massive, you know, traffic of trucks with broken windshields, dust everywhere, signs of man camps, emergency care, laundry, you know, drink, you know, liquor. I mean, you just saw the infrastructure that was creating this boom. We went into the man camps and it was one of the most degrading things I've ever seen. Twelve men in a storage unit with some, in some cases, no windows and others just postage stamp size. You know, and my father was absolutely stunned, realizing the management cared nothing for these men. They were expendable. It became even more poignant because his son, my brother, had gone up to the Balkan hoping to make some money um, and get control of his life. In truth, it shattered his life, and he found himself on the streets. Brutal, absolutely brutal, and we witnessed that. And it really brought forth a lot of stories in my own father's life saying, you know, for years I always felt guilty that I couldn't afford to get motel rooms for our men when they were laying pipe in Evanston, Wyoming. And he said, I remember going to the Army-Navy store and buying cots for all the men and sleeping bags and cooking gear. But he said, now I realize, you know, there we were in a circle um, underneath the stars telling stories. And the next day when we had to lay pipe and go beneath the river, um, we made record time because there was a camaraderie and they knew that they were loved. He used that word, loved. 
So those were the kinds of conversations we had. It got tense when all of a sudden conservation butted up against development. And my father, who is a lifelong Republican, just said, you know, Terry, you can't have it both ways. You know, we're driving up here. You use airplanes, you know, you fly on planes, and yet there has to be oil and gas. So what's the alternative? So it was, again, a dynamic conversation in a dynamic landscape and not without its heartbreak and uh, disagreement. Again, in this theme of, I mean, this is a book about relationships and the relationship between you and your father, very loving, sometimes tense, the relationship between him and the men whom he cared for. And, you know, he gave advice to a young person who wanted to, who was thinking about getting a job in this field, doing energy development, and basically said, don't work for a company where you can't meet the guy in charge. And then the relationship between Valerie Naylor, superintendent of the park, and the heads of the fossil fuel companies, she couldn't, it was so interesting to me, she couldn't even go to the legislators in her own state. She couldn't go to elected officials to get them to protect the park. She had to go to the people in charge of the of the energy companies. That was fascinating. She's a real hero to me. You know, she tells the extraordinary story of seeing on the list of lands to be developed for oil, the parcel directly next to Teddy Roosevelt's Elkhorn Ranch. And if there is anything about that ranch, it is about solitude and silence. And so she invited the CEO to come to the park to go stand on that land that he wanted to develop and listen. And then she invited him to walk the path to where Theodore Roosevelt lived, his cabin where you still see the foundation stones. And she just waited for him. So several hours passed, he came back, and he said, how many people use this trail? What's the visitation here? And she said, one. And he said, no, 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 What's, what are the numbers? How many people come to this site? And she said, one. And I think what he realized was, it's one person, one experience, just as Theodore Roosevelt had his solitary experience. That's what you protect. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. And he made the decision to drill from another site diagonally underground so that that wouldn't be impaired. But, you know, she has since retired. She was exhausted. The new superintendent, who is also a woman, now is taking up the charge. But it is relentless. And I think the other thing I realized in researching this book, The Hour of Land, is conservation is a generational stance. It's not about winning. It's not about the outcome. It is literally every single day in the places we call home, whether they're iconic landscapes like Yellowstone or Yosemite or Acadia National Park or our own home ground in our communities. We have to be vigilant and really think about community in the largest, broadest terms, not just community for our species, but rocks, rivers, plants, animals, and human beings, seeing the world whole. I often think of it as being like people who are doing that kind of protection are the immune system. You're never done. You know, the little cells in your immune system are never done getting rid of pathogens. You're always working. Brooke talks a lot about that. We've been 
and what you and Paul Hawkins were talking about, right? Yeah, that book of Paul Hawkins, Blessed yeah. Unrest, has that whole chapter on immunity. Right. And I, I actually wrote to him the other day and I said, I'm revisiting that because, as you recall, that book is about all the organizations that are out in, on the planet that are doing social justice, environmental work, all of it. And it was about organizations. And I think that's really, really, really important. But even so, I feel like it's now each of us as an individual. What role do we play in that immune system of the planet? And in fact, if you look at what's going on, the administration that's currently in power is really anti-life. It's really like a disease if you look at it from a natural perspective or an infection. And it really needs to be dealt with in that way because everything they do every day is anti-life. You decided, you both decided at a certain point to devote yourselves, I mean, in the sense of, okay, what can I do? What can we as a small group or individuals do to devote yourselves to keeping fossil fuels in the ground where you live, Utah? And you did something that was, I'm going to assume or, or ask you, was it inspired by the climate activist Tim DeChristopher, namely bought up some leases on public lands? It was absolutely inspired by Tim. Um, the difference is when Tim created his own act of civil disobedience by bidding up the oil and gas leases in 2008, the price of oil was at its all-time high, and he bid up, I think it was $1.3 million worth of, of oil and gas leases. And it was an act of civil disobedience um, not to be paid, but to be protested. And he, in fact, served two years in prison, a federal prison. When Brooke and I bought the leases, oil prices had dropped. We were able to purchase these leases on our debit card with fingers crossed <laughs> that we would have enough money in the bank to do that. Um, it was called a remnant sale where, shockingly, we could purchase leases to public lands at $1.50 an acre. That's cheaper than a cup of coffee. And Brooke, you later were looking at social costs, which I think told another story. It was really interesting. We, it wasn't a plan that we had made going into this. It just, everything happened. All these sort of doors swung open and we kept walking through them and ended up looking at the maps after the fact and finding parcels that mattered to us. And we had to go back and forth with the BLM because they were insisting that we needed to have the intent to actually drill on these leases or it was illegal for us to own them. And in the end, they denied them to us because of that. But in the meantime, we said, we have no intent to drill on, on these leases until the price of oil guarantees that the social costs will be internalized. And what I mean by that is uh, right now, they there's estimates that the social cost, meaning the the coming hurricanes, the the sea level rises, all these factors that we're aware of that climate change um, is causing, no one's paying for those, and we're passing those costs on to the future to to our children and grandchildren. And I was able to get in touch with a economist in Portland, Oregon, or you know in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, I think it was. And he's the one that has made all the calculations and determined that 
the amount of greenhouse gases that come from burning one barrel of oil. And when you start to think about that, then you can apply a social cost, which some people think is low as $50, other people think is as high as $300 a barrel, per barrel. Per barrel. So that there's a calculator that you can find that says, all right, if, a, if the cost of a barrel of oil, which right now is around $53, that goes to what, $2.40 a gallon at the pump, which is what we pay. Well, if you add $300 to the price of a barrel of oil, and then you calculate the price at the pump, it's like $13 a gallon that we would be paying if we were paying the accurate cost. And I think that to me is something that everyone can get their head around. And I think that's when we said, you know, we will develop these leases when science can show us that the fossil fuels below ground are worth more above ground given the cost of climate. As Brooke said, our leases were denied nine months later. We are appealing their decision on, on the grounds of a double standard. The oil and gas companies that bought leases the same day we did have no intent of developing those leases until the price of oil goes up. And so we're appealing the decision to the Department of Interior, the Board of Land Appeals. I think what they're worried about is setting a precedent. And we were just uh, made aware of the leases that were sold outside of Chaco Canyon. And one person I was talking to said those went for $3 million because an oil company feels like they can get their money back by drilling them. But it's not out of the picture, out of the question that if somebody who really wanted to keep the oil in the ground next to Chaco to not develop those leases, I think $3 million could have been raised to buy those leases. Right. And I think it's those acts of imagination with social activism can really create a different kind of political landscape. Are there costs? Yes. Tim DeChristopher went to prison for two years. You know, I lost my job. But I think it's, it's that question, Brooke, and I keep asking ourselves, you know, how serious are we? And just speaking with Larry Rasmussen, who's a great ethicist and in my mind, spiritual elder, and he was talking about, let's name it, we are in the midst of a planetary tragedy, and this current Trump administration is doing everything in their power to undermine an ethical stance toward life, whether it's immigration, whether it's environmental protection, whether it's health care, equity. And I, I think each of us, in our own way, with the gifts that are ours, again, in the places we call home, have to rise. One of the things that I thought was so interesting, you gave a talk the other night and you were talking about this gas lease auction. You did the bidding and got this piece of land, which was later rescinded in a lease. But one of the things which I think is so important because it speaks to the way the current administration uses language, you talked about the vile language they use to describe land during the auction. Who was speaking and what kind of things were they saying? Again, closed doors. I happened to be there as witness. And the auctioneer, white, male, most of the people in the room were white, male. The vulgarity of language, the language of, you know, who's going to come? Let's come. Who's going to come? Let's, you know, don't let her go. I can't even voice what the language was. It was so hideous, so sexist, racist abusive, you know, viewing the land that was up for sale as a woman, 
to be raped essentially uh, absolutely and I was stunned I was shocked and you know suddenly I just found myself the tears streaming down my cheeks I couldn't even you know try and calculate what the cost of, of this particular lease would be all I knew is that this was a vile secret society of abuse yeah. for the benefit of the few at the expense of the many and that's what galvanized my heart to where when Brooke and I were back on the street together we both just said we can do this and as Brooke said it wasn't something we thought about it was something that I think our whole lives we've been observing and finally we were in a position to do exactly that you know going back Mary Charlotte to the national parks I was stunned to learn that 40 of our national parks are at risk because of oil and gas development. 12 of those 40 already have oil and gas development inside them with another 30 pending. Chaco Canyon, as Brooke mentioned, being one of those. So again, what do our national parks mean to us? And how can we make our voices count as budget cuts are being made? And from my point of view, we're in the midst of, of a climate change coup from this administration. You give us a very, you both do in your books and in your work, a very deep feeling for the landscapes that you write about. And I think you use the words, a sense of place evolving into an ethic of place. And I wanted to ask you both, because you're both so engaged in a kind of um, activism, how do you speak with people who don't have that ethic? People who like to kill animals for target practice. Do you think they have the seed of that compassionate ethic inside of them? How do you bridge that? Will you tell the story, Brooke, about when you were working for SUA, the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and you went to that town meeting? Yeah, um, part of my job was to sort of attend to these different processes that were going on. And San Juan County is the largest county in Utah in the southeastern corner. And it's just literally, the, the population now is a fraction of what it was a thousand years ago in terms of early Native American people. It's also where Bears Ears National Monument Yeah, it's, it's Bears Ears is. National Monument. So I would always go as a member of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance to just see what came up in these county commission meetings because they're very anti-protection. They feel like any land that gets protected takes away what they perceive as their their heritage as Mormon set from their Mormon ancestors. And every day, every meeting, and there were Monday mornings, the, um, the chair of the commission would say, before a meeting, we always start with a, a moment of silence or a word of prayer. And obviously, some they had always said a Mormon prayer before, but somebody had challenged them, and they had looked into the legal legalities of it, of separation of church and state. And then they had this very well-formed statement that they would make about so moment of silence, word of prayer, whatever. So it was always a, a white Mormon man that would raise his hand and give the Mormon prayer. I did hear Mary Boy was a commissioner, a Navajo commissioner, and once in a while he would give a Navajo prayer. But one day I raised my hand and said, I'll pray. And they all knew I was from Sua, the, their arch enemy. And one of the old commissioners who was sitting in front of me 
turned around and said, Brooke, which God are you going to be praying to today? <laughs> so I called on my great-great-grandfather, Brigham Young, and gave the prayer. I love that story because I do think there's a common ground. Um, we just don't usually test it or acknowledge it. And I do think, especially in Utah, this is the irony and it's so heartbreaking. I think Utahns love these lands, but there's such a strong rhetoric. You know, politics is religion. Religion is politics. And everything gets skewed in the process and we stop listening to each other. But I know in my own family, my uncle was a state senator. The only organization he took money from as a PAC was the one he knew he would never compromise his own ethics, and that was the NRA. But on the other hand, you know, my uncle talks about having gamey eyes. You know, nobody loves wildlife more than he does, and he shoots them. And it's the same with my father. You know, I remember when in 1996 or 95 when the hearings for the Utah Wilderness Bill was up, my father stood up to testify, and I thought, oh, no, what's he going to say? And he stood up and said, you know, I'm proud of the scars I've made in the American West, particularly Utah. But the day I climbed Notch Peak, part of the Notch Peak wilderness, and looked out over the West Desert, you can't put a price on a day like that. We need more wilderness, not less. So I do think it's about language and about communication, about telling stories that bypass rhetoric and pierce the heart, where we see what binds us together rather than what tears us apart. And I think, you know, although Utah appears to be in a civil war, I think we're so close to agreeing to the same thing if we could just frame it differently. It would be so interesting if we could have a year or two without the words right and left. Yes. Because I think there's a lot of agreement that those words obscure. And wasn't wasn't there a time when you weren't on one team or the other. I mean, depending on the issue, you could have been on either side. And I think in Congress, people were constantly crossing over the aisle to, you know, agree with the other side. And now it's almost like you're, if you're on that side, you've got to buy the whole package. And if you're on that side, you buy that whole package. And I'm not sure what's going to fix that because those two sides, that aisle seems to get wider and wider and wider. Well, I remember talking to Stuart Udall you know, former Secretary of the Interior, and he just said, you know, there was a time when issues of the environment were bipartisan. It was only after Reagan that it became a partisan issue. And when you look at the great landmark pieces of legislation, Clean Air, Clean Water, Endangered Species Act, as we know, these were all under President Nixon. So I think as people, as citizens, we do have to call forth this open space of democracy that is about our health, even the health of the planet and that we, the people, must include other species as well. Yeah, very much so. And I, I often think that you can kind of tell where a person is coming from in how they use the word we. Mm. Does we mean family? Does we mean community of like-minded people? Does we mean the country? Does it mean the world? Does it mean every species? It can mean anything, depending on how wide your, your embrace is. That's really a good point, and I feel like that's what we're up against, is a people who feel like we is my little clan of, you know, like-minded, same-gendered, same culture, versus we that thinks of all life. I yeah. think that we're divided. we're divided between those two factions. I also think we've confused 
democracy with capitalism. Yeah. Especially now. And they are vastly different. Yeah. And and sometimes completely opposed to one another. One of the things that I appreciated in the book The Hour of Land is the awareness that in all of this land of the national parks, well, all of the land of, of this continent, it was all once native land. And it was not empty uninhabited wilderness, as some of the narratives would suggest. Tell us about places where Native American Indian influence and land management are coming back to these wilderness areas. I think the most interesting that I saw is happening at Glacier National Park with the Blackfeet Nation and the National Park Service. Now, if you go up to Glacier National Park, you see three flags flying on the border of Canada and the United States. You see the United States, American flag, you see the Canadian flag, and standing in the middle you see the Blackfoot Nation flag. I think it's fascinating that our new Secretary of Interior, Zinke, who is from Montana, his first public meeting um, in the United States is going to be with the Blackfoot Nation and the National Park Service at Glacier. The superintendent of that national park is spectacular, and he is saying, you know, we are a national park named Glacier where glaciers may no longer be part of our story. But what is part of our story is this idea of uncertainty. And I hope that's what they talk to the Secretary of Interior about. What is uncertain in terms of climate change? How our national parks can hold the ground in these places even as the glaciers are receding. And that with indigenous people, with native people, with the tribes, the Blackfoot Nation is an example, they can reintroduce which they're thinking about bison to Glacier National Park, that they can talk about um, co-management, which they are talking about, and that the boundaries between the park and the communities now are starting to not only expand but dissolve psychologically. I think we're seeing the same kind of native leadership with the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition that we just spoke of, with the Zuni, the Hopi, the Navajo, the two Ute nations, in communication in correspondence, in cooperative management with the Park Service, the Forest Service, the BLM. Is it messy? Yes. Will it take more time? Probably. But what do we gain in the process? We gain the wisdom, centuries old, traditional knowledge of what these lands mean, what the plants mean, how these are, are medicines. Again, the health of the people, the health of the planet. And that these landscapes, the ancestral homes of of indigenous people, um, that when you are in that country, you can still hear the voices singing through the canyons. There are, in both of your books, some really deep connections that you find that you describe for yourselves. Like, Terry, you write about being in Acadia National Park in Maine, where you've always felt a deep connection. You use the word DNA connection, even though you're from Utah. Then you find out that your actual ancestors lived exactly there. You meet some of their descendants. Brooke, you made a connection with an ancestor of yours, William Williams, who becomes kind of a companion to you in the wilderness. Another very deep connection. There's another story in the Hour of Land of Billy Lee, who's a Civil War reenactor you meet at Gettysburg National Military Park, who told you that a Civil War hero named John Lonergan quote, reached out and grabbed my ankle and said, tell my story. 
And years, 10 years later, Lee put the biography that he wrote of Lonergan on Lonergan's grave. How do you understand these kinds of connections? How do they inform your work as, as conservationists, as human beings relating to these places? I think that's a really good question. I'm not sure it's even one I can properly articulate. It's just that once I discovered this ancestor, and it was only as a means to find out where my homeland was, where my family came from. I was more interested in a place than I was a person. But it was as if there was a door that opened, and strange things happened. Um, I started paying attention to things differently than I had before and who knows exactly what's going on but I blame William Williams for making a big influence in my life and I think it was the same with the, the Civil War reenactor I think it's the same with your um, great-great-grandmother I think these people these they're the quantum physicists are starting to understand that we live in many different realities and the physical body that we have is only a small piece of who we really are. And I think growing up in Mormon culture, you know, we were quote unquote commanded to know our genealogy. And, you know, as children you'd yawn and then you'd be asked, All right, who is your mother? Diane Dixon Tempest. Who are your grandmothers? Catherine Blackett, Tempest, Letty Romney Dixon. Who are your great grandmothers? Louis Maven Dixon. Mamie Coomstock Tempest. Florian Kazair Blackett, the late Lee Romney. You know, these were names that lived with us. And so I think Brooke and I are very comfortable with the dead among us. But, you know, when you look at Native people, one of the most fascinating, moving national parks that we went to, Effigy Mounds in Iowa on the border of the Mississippi River, it was there that we really saw, again, call it racism, call it abuse, but two of the former National Park Services, this is the shadow side of the National Park Service, literally ripped through burial grounds. Even the effigies in the shapes of bears and falcons with a 200-foot wingspan, sacred to the Winnebago people. Finally, they, they've been prosecuted on charges of felony. Boxes of bones of, of Native ancestors were kept in their garages. So... You know, that's the other side of, of, our, of the history of our national parks and Native people. Now, there is a very powerful cultural anthropologist, archaeologist there, Albert Lebeau, who is Lakota, who has been making amends with the new national park superintendent. And the place that was once a place of abuse is now a place of healing. So... You know, I think we're in this, again, I'm going to use the word dynamic, dynamic time of, of consciousness. And even though I think so many of us are discouraged, I think the people on the margins, um, people of color, black people, brown people, you know, native people, they're saying, welcome to our world. Right. You know, and I think as, as white people of privilege, it's time to listen. It's time to be good allies to those who understand what revolutionary patience is and wisdom and dignity and strength. So I think even though it appears to be a dark time um, in the state of democracy in this country, I think it is an intense time of awakening 
And consciousness does not go backwards. I do not believe that. I think we are going forward. And I think we're really, each of us in our own way, are finding out where we can be of use. And that those three stories, the Glacier story with the Blackfeet, the Bears Ears story, the Effigy Mound stories are all related. And, and what what they and are saying... And Standing Rock. And at standing, at standing Rock. And what we are seeing as the descendants of white European settlers is that so there's something very important going on in the way of sa what sacred places look like, what, sacred, what the idea of a sacred land means. And we all have them. I mean, our ancestors came from, we, we have native ancestors going back to Europe, and yet we cut ourselves off from that. And I think what's happening right now in, the, in terms of consciousness is that we are being made aware of the idea of that places can be sacred and that we need to acknowledge that. And we have to think about it in terms of our own personal lives at the same time. And what those stories are. Yesterday we just had the most powerful afternoon at IAIA. Institute of American Indian Arts here in Santa Fe. And the Native students, I mean, I was, it was so profoundly moving listening to their stories. And it was an automatic writing called for by one of the students named Tyler. And they talked about environmental racism. And anyone who, who wasn't weeping, I don't know how we could even... It was just, it cut so deep. And I think these are the conversations that we're all having right now. Again, realizing what binds us together. There's a lot of work ahead of us. I think part of that work, I mean, going back to this whole question of ancestors, is listening on levels that we're not usually used to listening like not necessarily just in an analytical or solutions-oriented way, but I mean, in the entire history of human beings, there have always been ancestors present. And there still are, if you believe in that kind of thing, which many of us consciously or unconsciously do. And listening to that whole dimension, I mean, sometimes I imagine this whole world of ancestors who want to say something and nobody's paying attention. I know, and how do they get our attention? Yeah. You know, whether it's grabbing you by the ankle or in Brooke's case, you know, inhabiting your soul. I think for the last 10 years, we've had a third placemat, you know, <laughs> place setting for William Williams. But I, it, it makes for such a richer world. You know, I feel and can hear my grandmother's voice in my heart. You know, as a writer, I know my own vocabulary, ad nauseum. Um, but suddenly there's a fresh thought, and it's, they're not my words. And I think, okay, who's trying to reach me here? And uh, yeah. as Brooke said, you know, it's all about keeping the story going. And there are many stories. And there are so many more stories from this work that we could share, but we're going to have to wrap up in a moment. One of the things that I got from reading the work in both of your books and, and thinking about the way you are approaching land and conservation and the reality of this situation, and looking inside myself too, is that there are so many entanglements. There's no sort of like pure good guys and pure bad guys. And I think you spoke, Terry, about Donald Trump being our shadow. And I mean, John D. Rockefeller gave this land to the federal government for national parks, beautiful thing. But that money was made in standard oil 
which is responsible for, I mean, this whole petroleum industry that is the source of a big problem in the first place, climate change. And I look inside of myself, you know, my own consumerism or my own being entangled in this system. It's, I don't even know what the question is. Like, it's it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to untangle. Well, I think the key word for me is complexity and add paradox. And we are, you know, with the media, you look at it's black and white, it's Fox News, it's MSNBC. And I think that does all of us a disservice. You know, you talk about Donald Trump being our shadow. My uncle would say it is his light. It's a beacon, finally. But I remember listening to the radio and listening to an interview with Gloria Steinem, whom I greatly admire. And the interviewer said, is Donald Trump your president? And she said, no, he is not my president. And I remember as I was sitting there washing the dishes, um, I thought, I disagree. He is my president. He is my shadow, alter ego. He is resides in me. I went through a series of having night after night after night dreams of Donald Trump until I was afraid to go to sleep. You know, I think we're all complicit. We're all part of this. And I think he's the perfect president for this time for us to really recognize we are a consumptive society. And his values are the values of this country right now. And I think we're at a turning point for the planet and for democracy, saying, is this who we want to be? And I register a resoundingly no. And so at the last dinner party that we had at our family, which was Sunday night, we were all grousing about Donald Trump. And finally, my youngest brother, Hank, who works in the trenches, a shovel as his tool of choice, said, look inside. Why are you projecting outside? Look within. That's where the change has to come. And I believe him. And earlier, Terry, you mentioned consciousness does not go backwards. It goes forward. And I feel like we need to acknowledge that the Rockefeller family, you know, their oil companies, they did not drill for oil and sell it knowing it was going to destroy the planet. They now realize that it does, and they're they're making amends. I think the real tragedy comes when we feel like Donald Trump is is right where there is a time when America was great. Like we have to go back to something. We don't go back. We can't go back. That's the issue is that most of the people who support him feel like there was a time when everything worked. And that may have been true. I don't know. I doubt it. But we cannot go back to that. We're all we're going forward. We mentioned it in terms of native people. There's a consciousness that is on the move and it's never going to be more dynamic than right now and that's what we're trying to capture. And maybe the future will be much more beautiful and surprising than we can even imagine right now. Right. We It's hard to it's sort of hard to think or that. Or not. Yeah. You know, and I think this notion of outcome, I think if we can be as present as possible, as conscious as possible, as engaged as possible, then our future will be different than it is now. And we still have that choice. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you before we go. A lot of people are involved in the resistance that you've both have been talking about. This resistance has been going on for a long time. It's come to a head now. A lot of people who've never been politically involved before 
are getting involved. There's a lot of energy. A lot of people are wondering what their role is, what they can do. Is bearing witness enough? What kinds of actions are effective? What is your th- both of your thinking on that right now? I, my thought is that we all have inside us a clue to how the planet wants to make the best use of us. And I feel like bearing witness is the first step. I feel like we can't force ourselves to make big sacrifices for very long. I don't think sacrifice is a sustainable idea. But what we will find is that place inside us where we know what to do. And once we tap into that, what we do will not only be making a difference on a planetary level, but it will be the most meaningful thing. And we'll be happier and more energetic and we will be more alive because of it. And I think that's the key is that we can't force ourselves into a type of resistance just because it's maybe the popular thing right now. We can't, I just don't feel like we can do that. We need to find our own. I do think bearing witness matters. I don't think bearing witness is a passive act. I think it's an act of of conscience and consequence. Uh, I think each of us, as Brooke is saying, in our own way has to find our way in. What are our gifts? How can we bear them up in the name of community? How can we give them up in the name of community? And each in our own way, each in our time, own time with the passion that is ours. Maybe it's reproductive rights for women. Maybe it's immigration. Maybe it's public lands. But if each of us see ourselves as, as a part of that larger mosaic, then I think the design of democracy does deepen and change and sparkle, if you will. I think that action is an antidote for despair. I think beauty is its own form of resistance. I think it's really important we keep that in mind. With hands on the earth, we remember where the power our power lies. And I think the last thing, Mary Charlotte, is, you know, there are days where I feel like I can't even get out of bed, where I just wonder how, how, how do we go forward? But in those moments of despair, I'm aware of the limits of my own imagination. Imaginations shared create collaboration, and in collaboration, community is formed. And I honestly believe that in community, anything is possible. And that's what I think we're creating, these satellite communities that are deepening the concept of democracy, direct action, direct engagement with a way forward that we can't even see yet. Terry Tempest Williams and Brooke Williams, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Terry Tempest Williams is an award-winning author of many books, including her latest, The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. Brooke Williams is a longtime advocate for public lands. He's the author of the new book, Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. And if you want to get involved with conservation of our national parks, there's a whole bunch of organizations that you can check out. I'm posting links to a whole bunch of them at radioactivism.net. My favorite name among these organizations is there's one called Great Old Broads for Wilderness. And also nothing like actually taking a trip to one of our great, wonderful national parks. You can email me with questions, ideas, and comments at mc at radiocafe.media. Thanks for listening. Until next time.